Good morning, everybody. I'm Steve Nicholson. I'm a retired pastor from Chicago. Uh, I led a vineyard church down in the Chicago area for 45 years. So uh, <clears throat> if you start early enough, you can rack up some years there. But it's good to be in Minnesota, especially this time of year. Uh, I actually, you know, I've lived in Chicago for a pretty long time now, but I, I spent my four college years here in Minnesota, just a little bit south of here in a place called Northfield. This is back when Minnesota was really Minnesota, <laughs> you know, when it was <laughs> actually cold in the winter. I, I remember one January, we went the whole month and didn't get above zero the whole time. It's been quite a long time since I think Minnesota's seen that kind of weather. I do kind of watch the, your weather from Chicago. It, when I went there, I, it sort of like, when you, when you move to Chicago and it feels like a warmer climate, that tells you something. <laughs> anyway, it's good to be with you and uh, spend time with you. I, I want to take you back a little bit. I'm, I'm a bit of a history buff, so here's a story from history that actually happened, and I think it's going to speak to us today in an important way. Just about 300 years ago, just a little bit shy, about five years shy of 300 years, it was the norm in Europe that you had to everybody had to follow the religion of whoever was in control of where they lived, which was generally a king or, or a prince of some sort, some kind of nobleman. Um, this is bef before the American Revolution, so the whole idea that, of democracy that was not on the table at all. And, but there were a group of believers, people who had found Jesus who were out of sync, basically, with where they were living in terms of their faith. And so they were persecuted. And they were living in the area that's now called Germany. But there was one nobleman there, a guy named Count Zinzendorf, who was sympathetic to them. And so he told them, you can come to my territory and you can make a life here. You can build, I'll give you some land. You can build a whole new community, you can have a town, you can have a church, you know, and you, and it's sort of like, so they all picked up and they moved with their families and they all went there and made a whole new community. The problem was, it wasn't long, they found out that there were still things they disagreed about. They... They, you know, they disagreed about, you know, exactly how we did communion and how we do baptism. And they started disagreeing about, you know, a, a few sort of interpretations of minor passages in the Bible. And, well, you, you do know how that goes, right? And, that, and then pretty soon, you know, it got worse and they, it started becoming personal. They started polarizing. Of course, we modern people wouldn't know anything about polarizing. The next thing you know, they're saying to each other, you're from the devil. So things were really sort of going to hell in a handbasket, rather literally. And so the count, who's actually a politician, not a pastor, was finally like forced, like, 
I'm going to have to intervene in this situation because this thing's gone off the rails. So he comes and starts meeting with them on Sundays and starts preaching. And he spent a number of weeks basically rebuking the whole community, which is like it's a religious community. It's like it's like a church rebuking them for their selfishness and their pride. He's trying to like dig down to the root of the problem. Their selfishness and their pride. And in response to his rebuke and his sort of exhortations, like we can't go on like this, we have to change, something has to, you can't do this. A few of them started to pray. They would pray late at night after work. They'd get together and pray for a little bit. And they started praying that God would somehow break through and heal their community. And then God came. And the date was August 13th, 1727. The Spirit came on them in the middle of their worship. They were following a standard worship like they did every Sunday. And the Holy Spirit fell. And the people leading the prayers from the front were so overwhelmed by the presence of God, they couldn't speak. And they couldn't read. And then they were like on their knees. Or a couple of them ended up flat laid out on, in the front, you know. And then it started happening. People were falling down. People were shaking. People were crying out. There was this powerful move of God in their midst like they had never, ever seen or heard about. And this is how one of them described it. It's, it's a translation into English, of course, from German. They were in Germany in this area called Moravia. And late, later on, they became called the Moravians. They became famous by the district that they were from. Anyway, here's what, how one of them described it. He said, Verily, the 13th of August, 1727, was a day of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We saw the hand of God and his wonders, and we were all under the cloud of our fathers baptized with their spirit. And the Holy Ghost came upon us, and in those days, great signs and wonders took place in our midst. From that time, scarcely a day passed, but what we beheld his almighty workings amongst us. A great hunger after the word of God took possession of us a great hunger after the word of God took possession of us so that we had to have, had to have, three services every day. S namely, seven, five in the morning, 7.30 in the morning, and nine at night. Because, of course, all these people still had jobs. So those of you praying for revival, take note of what you might be praying for. But they had this such an insatiable hunger for God that they like had to meet every day. And then he goes on, he says, everyone desired above everything else 
that the Holy Spirit might have full control. Everyone desired above everything else that the Holy Spirit might have full control. Self-love and self-will, as well as all disobedience, disappeared. And an overwhelming flood of grace swept us all out into the great ocean of divine love. It was so wonderful. And you know, there's another little wonderful detail in the story of that day because two members of the community were away, out of town, on a business trip. And they were sitting in their hotel in, on Sunday, having their own private Sunday morning prayers, and the Holy Spirit fell on just the two of them all by themselves at the exact same time. They came back and said, what happened last Sunday? <laughs> and, and they said, let me, let me tell you. So it began to continue like this, now meeting every day in their community. And God softened their hearts to one another. And they began to repent of their judgments and their polarizing attitudes, their criticisms, their disunity over unimportant things. They began to see God work in wonderful ways between them. And one of the things then that began to happen is they not only felt this desire for the word of God, but they felt called by God to begin to pray together continually. And so they set up a 24-hour-a-day prayer chain where they would all take a time slot for an hour on the clock, and they would pray around the clock 24 hours a day and pray for God to continue his work in their community and through their community. And so they began this prayer meeting that they all participated in, and folks, the prayer meeting didn't end for a hundred years. It went for a hundred years. As they were in the prayer meetings, after a while, after God began to like heal them and heal their hearts and their community and their, the things that had like been about to destroy them, God began to speak to them about the forgotten people of the world. And the first people he spoke to them about and that he put upon their hearts were the slaves on the sugar plantations, the African slaves on the sugar plantations in the Caribbean, which I don't, I don't know if you know the story of the plantations in the Caribbean, but it's her, the conditions were horrific and lifespans were very short um, in the Caribbean. And, and these people felt compelled by the love of Christ to go to tell the African slaves of the love of Jesus. Now, the slave owners, the plantation owners, thought this was a bad idea. They did not want them to come. Because if you preach the gospel of Jesus to people, you're like, you are making them your brothers and sisters and therefore equal to you. 
So it undercuts, of course, the whole system that the plantation owners were depending on. So they didn't want them to come. So two of the brothers said, we will go no matter what, and we will sell ourselves into slavery and let them take us as slaves to the plantation owners so we can tell the people there about the love of Jesus. Now, in reading the history, I've seen two different accounts, and so I'm not sure which is true, whether they actually followed through on it or whether the plantation owners backed down. But I do know that they went. And they did what they were called to do, although they also died there in the Caribbean, as, as many other people did. Then, God began speaking to them about the indigenous peoples of North America. This is, you know, seven, early 1700s, very early on. And so they sent other people who came over, and the first place they went, where they went to the Cherokee people in, that were then living in the area that we would now call Georgia. I don't know if you know the story of the history of the Cherokee people, but they were very responsive to the Moravians. Many of them became believers. A century after this, um, they were dispossessed of their land in Georgia that they had occupied for many thousands of years and forced to move to Oklahoma. And again, the conditions were very bad. Many people died on the way. They call it the Trail of Tears. But the, what a lot of people don't know is that the, the Cherokee people, as they were on the Trail of, tear, of Tears, being made exiles from their own land, they were singing hymns to Jesus. They were our brothers and sisters in faith. And the Moravians made it so. And then God began speaking to them about the Muslim people in the Middle East and, and, the, and other people in other parts of the world. In every direction, they ended up scattering all over the world to bring this powerful love of Jesus wherever they could. That, folks, that is what kingdom life is actually all about. Like, that is the kingdom of God at work in the world. That's what it means to have the, to be under the full control of the Holy Spirit. And so many of us, we read of those things and we say, yes, we would like that. We want that. We want to be a part of that. Maybe we have our own experiences. We've, we, we've had that experience of the Lord coming on a wonderful day and power and touching us. And, but then, like, over time, it, like, fades away. It's like we get filled with the Spirit and we leak. It, it's sort of like... Over time, it seems like the church seems to slide back into the old apathy and just human effort, and then pretty soon bickering again, like back where they started. And that hunger for God and that tenderness towards God and one another gets lost. And my concern this morning, what I want to talk about is, why does that happen? How can we keep it from happening? How can we keep this thing going? How can we keep it alive? And I think... 
The key is simply this. We must continually, not just once, but continually choose to give the Holy Spirit full control over our lives. Galatians 5.25 says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So it's the very, very verses is like an acknowledgement, like we need to actually work at, the, at staying in step because we could get out of step with him. We could, we could miss it over time if we don't continually work to stay in step with him. How do we do that? How do we stay in step with the Holy Spirit? How do we give him full control? And this is where I think it starts. I'd like to make three suggestions for you. My first suggestion is this. We walk in step with the Spirit by giving our life, our ministry, and our church fully over to God. My church was an independent sort of charismatic church that we'd started in the tail end of the Jesus movement. And uh, we, before we met the vineyard, we hadn't joined the vineyard. And uh, we very quickly realized that we were running out of passion. And, you know, what we had hoped for our church was not happening. And so we began to pray. And for like two years, three years, we prayed every way we could. We made prayer chains. We had all-night prayer meetings. We had morning prayer meetings. We had to keep changing it to keep people praying because the, the, nothing actually happened. <laughs> nothing was happening in the prayer meetings. We were just praying, and it was labor. It was work. And we prayed, and we prayed. And then... One day there was a breakthrough, very much like the Moravians in 1727. And it was a little bit ironic because, you know, I'm a little bit of a skeptical person sometimes. You know, I can remember not too long before people had said, what do you think of these people falling down under the power of the Holy Spirit? And I said, I think it's all fake and they're just, you know, pushing people down. <laughs> So anyway, this day came and the Spirit of God came on my church and half the church ended up on the floor. Like boom, boom, boom. They were actually knocking chairs over. We had folding chairs, not stacking chairs. Some people got under the folding chairs, shaking. I don't know how you get under a folding chair, but they, they were under the folding chair, people crying and shaking. God just completely uh, surprised us and it kept happening. And, of course, everybody comes to the front on Sunday now to see what's going to happen next. And they come early, and, you know, people started getting healed and, and various things like that. So it was, like, really exciting time. And then we had a leaders meeting. It was, like, one of the very first leaders meetings we had after this outpouring. And there was a prophetic word. And the Lord said very clearly to us, Okay, you got the revival you've been praying for. But if you want it to keep going, you have to give the church back to me. He said, you leaders have never let anything happen in the church that you hadn't figured out ahead of time and that you couldn't be in control of. Which was true. And he said, I want you to give the church back to me. 
Now, that was a big problem for me. I did not want to give the church back to Jesus. And the reason it was a big problem for me was that I started that church for me. Like, I always tell the people at our church, we've got, well, pre-pandemic, we had over 1,000 people. I don't even know what we have now. But, you know, I started the church for me. Like, I wanted to have a church. You know, I was kind of a hippie kid where we didn't dress up. No, you know, no more suits and ties. I don't really like suits and ties. They're fine on other people. Just don't make me wear them. <laughs> um, and I wanted to worship with guitars and have small groups. So I, met, I met, wanted, I made this church for me. So I thought, like, wait a minute here. What if I give my church back to Jesus and he changes it and I don't like it? It's sort of like the same version of, you know, what if I give my career? What if I give my life to Jesus? What if he wants me to do something I don't want to do? A question we all probably ask at some level or other, right? And that was me. Like, I don't know if I want to give the church back to Jesus. Well, I might not like it. What will I do then? But I couldn't for the life of me figure out how to say to Jesus, I want to keep your church for myself. So I kind of gritted my teeth and said, okay, I, I, I give the church back to you. It's like signing a blank check, wondering what he's going to write in the amount. Well, the first thing that happened was the Holy Spirit started falling on people in the meeting, small groups, Sunday morning, any kind of meeting we had, the small Holy Spirit would fall on people, and people started confessing their sins. And in particular, and again, this is very much like the Moravians, particularly the sins in our relationships with one another. Many times things that we hadn't even realized that were sins, like, you know, just simply uh, sins of neglect, didn't, you know, love, or sins of judgment, sins of criticism, so forth, those kinds of things, selfishness, wanting to have our own will, all of that. We, he started, people started confessing their sins. And then the Lord started working on me. And first thing he convicted me, you know, there's a lot of people that left the church because they had a conflict with you. Yep. And uh, part of that conflict was that you wanted to control too much of their life and have it go your way. Yeah. So I had to write a whole lot of apology letters to people that had broken relationship. I had to go back to the past and repair old relationships. Then the Lord said, you know, the way you've been pastoring has been too controlling of people. You, you, you've, you're not giving people enough space. You're not letting me work in them. You have to repent of that. So I'm in front of the church again, repenting. Then he said, I really don't like your attitude of suspicion towards what the women and what they might do and the Holy Spirit in the women. So then I'm a friend of the church again, repenting. So like we all got to participate in this process. And you know what? I mean, telling it now, it doesn't, it's so hard to convey to you what it was actually like because it can sound like it was a hard thing or a heavy thing or a harsh thing, but it wasn't. It was like a freeing thing. 
It was like freedom. We, we couldn't wait. Like, as God made us aware of things, we couldn't wait to confess and repent and let it go. It, 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 was, it felt so wonderful. It felt like God was so close to us. It was that period of time in my life, I've never felt closer to God than in that period. It was like, the way I describe it, it was like we were floating in a sea of God's mercy the whole time. It was glorious. It was so wonderful. You can't engineer it. You can't make it happen. But if God gives it, it's so, so wonderful. And you know what? Then he started changing our structure. And then he changed the way we did our leadership. And then he changed the way we did our worship. And then he changed the way we did our small groups. And, you know, at the end of the year, I was talking to my father about it. He was a pastor. And I said, you know, I don't think Jesus liked our church very much. When we gave it back to him, he changed everything. You know, finally, the last thing he changed was, oh, and you're going to join the vineyard and become a vineyard. So then we changed our name and became a vineyard, you know. And you know what? It was so much better. I mean, golly, I would have settled for no suits and guitars. And God had so many other wonderful things in store for us that we would have missed out on if we hadn't given it back to him. And you know what? That's what we have to do if we want this to keep going, if we want it to last, if we want it to be everything we've hoped for, we have to keep giving it back to him. Our church, your church, our ministries, our place, our careers, our families, it has to all be on the table. It has to be that whatever he wants, he gets to be in full control. You could end up in a place you've never been. Or you could end up staying in the same place you've always been. But it has to be his call, not yours. And that is where joy will really be found. Second, we had to learn to wait on God. You know, when you're trying to be in control, it's hard to wait. It's really hard to wait on God when you're trying to be in control. But we had to learn to wait. We had, and waiting meant living in dependence upon the Lord. And, you know, as the Moravians were in their 24-hour prayer meeting, what was happening there was they were waiting on the Lord. They're waiting on him. And in that context of waiting on the Lord, the Lord began to call them and empower them for different kinds of works in different places. But they didn't make it up out of their own agenda or their own minds, but rather they waited upon the Lord and then he would send the wind and carry them to the various places and and things that they needed to be doing in different parts of the world. You know, one of the theme verses of, of the Vineyard Movement is John 5, 19, where Jesus tells the religious leaders, 
Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For me, that meant learning that I could not lead a church by myself or in my own strength or my own wisdom or my own smarts. No matter how smart you are, no matter how wise you are, no matter how strong you are, it's not enough. In yourself, you can't do anything that will last. Only what is him will last and work. That the son can do nothing of himself, then surely it is also true for us that we can do nothing of ourselves, but only what God gives us to do. Only what he's shown us to do. Only what's coming from his initiative. And that comes down to very practical things along the way. I'll tell you an example. When we started, we were all a bunch of college students or immediate post-college students. Some of us had gotten married, but nobody had any kids. But the way these things go, more and more got married and pretty soon kids started appearing. And so then it's sort of like, we need to do something for the kids. We need to have a, a, a Sunday school or a kids' church. So there was this seminary guy named Dave who was attending our church, and he kind of needed a part-time job. So he said, let's just hire Dave, and he can do Sunday school for us. So Dave kind of wanted to work for the church, and he needed a job. So he said, okay. So he agreed to do Sunday school for a year. After about six months, Dave came to us and he said, at the end of my year, I'm resigning. In fact, I'm not even going to continue with my program of study. I've decided I'm not called to serve the church at all. <laughs> and I'm going to become a counselor instead. <laughs> and so at that point, I realized like, oh, we need to not just like stick some warm body based on our human wisdom into this slot. We need somebody called by God on a mission from God for the church. So we didn't tell the church he was resigning because I knew we had 20 people looking for jobs who were all going to apply and none of them were called. And I didn't want to have to say no to 20 people in the church. Because, you know, they apply, and then you don't hire them, and then they're mad at you, and then they leave the church, and so, like, you know, you're just worse off than you started. So I didn't even want to get, go down that path. I just didn't tell people that we were looking. Instead, we waited on God, and we prayed. and said, God, we need you to call somebody. So the months start ticking over, and now we're down four months to catastrophe, and then three months to catastrophe, <laughs> You know, the, the explosion down the hall when there's nobody down there managing things. And then I'm getting pretty desperate. I'm now lying on my living room floor, crying out to God, God, please call somebody to minister to our kids. So somebody decides to have a soup and sandwich night and invites a few of us over to their house after church. So we all go over there. And we're eating soup and sandwiches. Somebody in the group says, I have an idea. Let's go around the room and everybody tell the dream they had for their life that they've never told anybody. 
And my immediate response was, that sounds kind of hokey. This is going to be hokey. Nobody's going to tell the truth. But <laughs> I wasn't my party, so I didn't say anything. And I just kind of played along with it. And so I started going through it. And then we came to this woman. Her, she was an African-American woman named Eloise McKittrick. Now, she had been coming to our church for a little while. We knew who she was. She was an executive vice president or some high muckety-muck at Kraft General Foods. She got picked up in a limo for her commute every morning. So she could work in the limo on the way. She had like three secretaries who worked for her in her office. And I don't know how many people she supervised. She was, she had a PhD and, you know, all kinds of degrees. And I mean, she was an incredible woman. And she was making, of course, lots of big money, high up in the corporate world, you know, really pretty exceptional for that time period. And uh, when it comes to her, and she says, well, my dream for my life that I've never told anybody is that I would like to work for Steve, and I think it has something to do with children. I nearly had a heart attack. Like my eyes were like, I was like choking on my food, my eyes popping out. I thought, did I just hear what I just heard? I thought, could God be like that? Would he be that good for our, to our kids? Like, could that happen? So I, I, nobody else in the room, of course, knew what was going on, that we'd been praying for three months. So it's sort of like, it's just me going nuts. I didn't even hear what anybody said the rest of the night. And then, so that, then I thought, well, is the ball in my court? Do I need to call her? And then I started thinking about the salary we were going to offer. Uh, would you like to have a 95% pay cut? <laughs> and, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I just can't do it. I can't ask anybody, I can't ask her to become our children's pastor because, like, there's, it's not going to have any money to speak of and no status whatsoever. Like, it's just serving kids. And I've, Wrestled with God all week long and agony. Like, so now I think, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's her. Maybe it's really her, but how does it happen? And how can I ask her? And finally, it's Sunday after church, and I just finally said to God, like, I just can't do it. I can't do it. I can't call her up and tell her about this. If you want her to be our children's pastor, you're just going to have to tell her yourself. Thirty seconds later, the phone rings, and it's her. And she says, "Every night this week, I've had two dreams, the same dreams every night. And I felt like God said I needed to call you up and tell you my dreams. And I thought, "Tell me your dreams." I thought, "This is it. Like it's thirty seconds, and I've got my answer to my prayer. Tell me your dreams. Here's the first dream. See if you can figure this out." There's an airplane 
trying to take off from Chicago, but it can't get in the air because it has a missing part. So it has to taxi down the highway to Kentucky to her parents' house to get the missing part so it can actually get off the ground. Like, that's super obvious. Like, she's the missing part that this church needs to get off the ground. That's dream number one. Dream number two, Jesus takes her into the basin of her grandmother's house, and it's filled with children, and he says, you're to pray over these. So all I said to her, he says, well, well, what you don't know is Dave has resigned, and he's leaving in September, and we've been praying for God to call somebody to be our children's pastor. And she started screaming on the phone. On the other line, and in September, she left Kraft and came to work for us. She was our children's pastor for 25 years. I mean, she's retired now, but, uh, but she stayed with us for 25 years, and so we watched a whole generation of kids grow up under her leadership. A whole generation, all right? And there are leaders and pastors and et cetera, et cetera, of all sorts that came up under her ministry that will point back to the crucial role she played in their life and development. And it still gives me chills. <laughs> it still gives me chills. And that's what you get when you wait and let God call the shots. Again, we, we could have like just done it in our own strength and we wouldn't have gotten half of it. We wouldn't have gotten half of it of what we could have got if we let God do it. So, we have to wait. Last thing. You have to keep saying yes. You have to keep saying yes to God. Big things, little things, you have to keep saying yes. You have to keep saying yes. And that always means risks. What if it doesn't work? What if it goes wrong? What if it's not gone? What if I make a mistake? But you have to keep saying yes. You know... <laughs> I was up here in July, and I was on the plane going home. And I had my mind all set on, I'm going to put my gospel music on, and I'm going to feel really good and enjoy my hour and a half trip back to Chicago. But it's this plane with two seats on the side. I'm getting all settled. I've literally got my earbuds in my hand, and the guy comes, sits down next to me, turns to me immediately and says to me out loud, I'm on my way back home after the worst day of my life. And I thought, oh, gospel music's not going to happen today. Because it's like, it's the call of God. Like, I'm going to say yes, I'm going to talk to this guy. And I basically just pastored him and ministered love and mercy to him for an hour and a half the whole way back. You know, or it might be like, you know, the, the time I'm up at 
a student group years ago when I actually looked like a student myself in, in Northwestern, kind of basically treating the, the student group there as our farm club for our church. And uh, a guy comes in, he sits next to me, and he's got a terrible cold. He's dripping and sweating, and he's got a fever, and he's coughing and sneezing, and I'm irritated a little bit. Why is he here? Why is he so late? Why is he sitting next to me? And then I just felt prompted to pray for him. Just pray for him. Again, but at that point, I didn't have much experience with praying for people. And, but I said yes. And I said, do you mind if I could pray for your cold? And he said, yes, go ahead. And I prayed for his cold. I don't even know how I prayed for his cold. But I prayed for his cold. And he was instantly healed. Like, completely. Like, I watched it all change. Like, in 30 seconds, he was like normal. It was all gone. All his symptoms were gone. Only time in my life I've seen a cold healed. Like, in terms of my track record, almost better to have cancer than a cold. <laughs> because I've seen a lot more cancers healed than, than colds. But he got healed. Turns out he's an exchange student from Turkey. He's from a Muslim background. He then becomes a believer. He brings another woman from that from from Northwestern, who's an exchange student, who's from Turkey. She starts coming to our church. She becomes a believer. She goes back to Turkey, gets connected with a few other college students that have also come to faith in Jesus in Turkey, who are forming the first indigenous Turkish church in history. They invite me to come and teach them about the Holy Spirit. I went over there and it exploded. Long story short, we, that led to where we are now, six vineyard churches in Turkey. And one in Azerbaijan, Baku, which is another Turkish-speaking country nearby, and several churches in Tajikistan, which is the first country north of Afghanistan, and about 100 or more house churches in Iran, all starting with praying for a cold. So you just have to keep saying yes. That's what the Moravians did. They said yes as the Spirit moved and God led them to different places, they always said, yes, we will do it, whatever it costs. And the results changed the world. It could happen again. It must happen again. We need that right now like we've never needed it. That kind of healing, that kind of restoration of relationship and unity, that kind of commitment we need more than ever. The first step, though, is giving it all back to God, and that's what I'd like to lead you to do right now. Can you all stand? This is a time to say to Jesus, I'm giving you 
This is the time to sign the blank check with Jesus. To give him your church back, give him your ministry back, give him your place back, give him your career back, give him your family back. Give it all back to him here and now. And what I'd like to suggest, I'm, we're going to have just a few minutes of silence, and I'd like to suggest that you, when you say it to Jesus, what you're giving back to him, what you feel like you've, you've got to respond with. And I want you to whisper so that you're actually using your mouth to give it back to him. And whatever it is he's kind of point leading you towards right now, just say it to him and give it back to him. We're going to wait a minute or two for you to do that. You can start now. Lord God, would you overshadow us not just with your power, but with that ocean of divine love. I pray that you would touch our hearts, that you would heal our hearts from every place where we've let any kind of division, judgment, selfishness, self-will, pride creep in. Would you heal us and set us free by the power of your mercy? Lord God, would you do a great and abundant things far above what we could do ourselves or what we could even dare to ask for? Would you make this congregation a beacon of hope in a world in trouble? especially to all the forgotten people, wherever they may be. May you have your complete will in this family, in this community, in our lives, each one. Your will first. Your will always. And give us the courage to keep saying yes for your glory and the sake of the world. Amen.